Well, good morning. Can I get this on? Okay. Well, it is a blessing and a pleasure to be able to uh, be here together again with you this morning. It's been uh, quite a while, but it's always a blessing when I have the opportunity to come and share from the Word of God. And our text this morning is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. So I want to invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the pews in front of you, you can find our passage on page 1373. It's page 1373. And as you're making your way to our text this morning, I think it's worth mentioning that the Bible has a lot to say about suffering. I think it's fair to say, at least we get this sense when we read Scripture, that suffering and the Christian life are really inseparable. Now, as Christians, we know that there are several causes of our suffering, and one of those causes is the fact that sin has corrupted every aspect of this world. Because of the fall, because of the, the sin of Adam, he subjected not only the entire human race, but all of creation to corruption. And because of that, we are made to suffer. Life can be very, very hard. Now, another cause of our suffering is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he and his people are united together, we share his sufferings. Our destinies and Christ's destinies are bound up together. Because he suffered, we too will suffer. But we also know that suffering, at least when we read scripture, that for the Christian, however difficult it may be to endure, it's not without purpose. It's not meaningless suffering. And that's not something that's always easy for us to see. It's not always obvious, especially when we're in the midst of going through it. Suffering that is something that many of us are intimately acquainted with, whether it be physical suffering or mental anguish or even spiritual suffering. And sometimes our afflictions are so great Our trials and tribulations are so overwhelming that we feel that they're beyond our ability to bear. And as I thought about this, I asked myself this question. Does the Bible have anything to say to us when we're in those kinds of circumstances? You know, when we reach the point where we feel so overwhelmed by the problems of life that we're left in a state of despair. Do the scriptures have anything to say? Are they any help to us whatsoever? And of course the answer is yes, it does. Not only does the Bible have something to say about it, it also equips us to deal with these things when they happen. In our text this morning, we're going to read an account in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's about a time in his life where he was suffering so greatly that it left him in a state of utter despair. But we're also going to see that God has a clear purpose in allowing him to be afflicted in that way. And it's really no different for us. You see, there's a principle in our passage this morning that applies directly to us as we suffer through the trials and tribulations of this life. A principle that if we really understand it and lay hold of it will change not only the way we view suffering, but also the way that we respond to it. Now, we're going to be looking or focusing primarily on verses 8 through 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, but for the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And the Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope, is for you, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, as we gather together as your people, as we unite our hearts in worship of you, Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would abide with us, that he would fill this place with your glory that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us. Help us to understand, O oh Lord. And I pray that you would change hearts and minds, for only you can do those things. And we do ask that you would do that this morning. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. So, as we look at our text this morning, Paul recounts for us a time in his life where he had suffered greatly. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on. All, all we know is that whatever it is, it most, happened, most likely happened during the time that he was in Ephesus. It was during a time on his third missionary journey. And it was something recent. It wasn't something far off in his past. It was most likely not long after he had written 1 Corinthians. And whatever it was, it was so bad that it left him in a state of utter despair. It was so bad that it, it, he felt like he was going to die. Look with me again at verse 8 and at verse 9a, the first half of verse 9. It says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt we had received the sentence of death. Now, I, I think the reason he doesn't tell us much is he doesn't want us to focus on the details of his suffering. That's not his focus. That's not why he wrote this. His hope was to impart some measure of God's comfort to the Corinthians. Because he knew that they, too, were going to suffer. He wrote this knowing that we were going to suffer. So he wants us to focus here not on the details of the experience, but on the purpose, the divine purpose behind it. He wants us to focus not on the suffering itself, but on the one who comforts and ultimately delivers. And I think that's something that's really important for us to understand. I mean, all too often we, we get caught up in the details of whatever is going on in our lives. We get caught in the weeds, if you will. We're so focused on our problems and trying to figure out what we're going to do about them that we miss what God is trying to teach us as he walks with us through them. Paul wants to change our perspective on suffering so that we can respond to it in a way that not only helps us, but more importantly, we can respond in a way that honors and glorifies God. And I think that unless we're careful here as we read this, we're going to miss that point. Now, there are many different reasons why we suffer. Maybe you're suffering as a result of sinful patterns of or sinful responses or a pattern of sinful responses to something that happened in your life and God is disciplining you. Well, the good news there is the fact that he's disciplining you means that he counts you as a son. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And the proper response, of course, to this kind of suffering, suffering that is caused by a pattern of sinful responses to something in our lives, is repentance. Jesus tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's one of the reasons why we suffer. Another reason we suffer is maybe your, your body just isn't functioning the way that God created it to function anymore. Maybe you're suffering because you really have no idea at all why. Or maybe there's no single thing that you can point to, and it's completely mind-boggling and beyond your comprehension. You have no idea why you are going through whatever it is you're going through. I mean, we know from Scripture, after all, that there isn't always a direct cause to why we are made to suffer. We can't always point out the reasons. In answering his disciples' question about a man who was born blind, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we see that ultimately, our suffering is for the glory of God. And because of that, it has purpose. A glorious purpose. A divine purpose. And as we try to understand those purposes, our passage today gives us three things that God uses our suffering to accomplish. Three things that God uses suffering to work in us for his glory. We see that he, that he uses afflictions, number one, to teach us humility. So God uses afflictions to teach us humility. We see that he uses afflictions to drive us to dependence. To drive us to dependence. And finally, he uses afflictions to remind us of our hope. Yes, there is hope in suffering. So the first thing that we see is that God uses afflictions to teach us humility. Afflictions teach us humility. Now there's a, a popular saying that most of us are familiar with. Some of you may have either uh, had said someone say it to you or maybe you've said it to someone else, and that's God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Anyone familiar with that saying? That God doesn't give us more than we can handle? Well, while that's nice... While it might make, might make us feel better when we're struggling, it's, it's not really entirely accurate. It's not what the Bible actually says. How do we know? Look with me again at the second part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9. It says, For we were so utterly be burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt that we had received the sentence of death. Whatever's Paul, whatever his affliction was, he was so burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. In other words, whatever his burden was, it was more than he could handle. It was more than he could handle. Now, I think there are some very important things that we can learn from this. First, what didn't Paul do? Well, he didn't pass himself off as some kind of superhero. He didn't try to come across as someone who was immune to adversity. He didn't try to hide from the fact that he was suffering. And secondly, if nothing else, Paul was keenly aware of his limits. He was keenly aware of his weaknesses. He confesses that he was bordering on absolute despair. But what do we do when we're faced with burdens that are more than we can handle? What do we do? What's our reaction? We try to tough it out. Often we try to muscle our way through. Either that or we grumble and complain about it. 
but very rarely do we admit that we need help. Now, the older that we get, the more keenly we become of the fact that we have limits and weaknesses. But still, often too often, because of our pride, and this is especially true for us men, we don't like to admit that we need help. Not even from the Lord. And the reason that is, is because we are proud. And the reason we're proud is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where we have an upside-down view of authority. We've decided that we're the ones that are truly in charge. We live in a world that hates the idea of submitting to authority. We live in a world that hates to admit that there are times when we need help. We don't want to admit that there are times when our problems are more than we can handle because it makes us look weak to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers. And when we admit that we have problems that are more than we can bear, we're admitting that we're really not the ones in charge. And that takes humility. So we see that God uses afflictions and suffering to teach us humility. He uses it to humble us. God uses afflictions and suffering to teach us to be humble. And in teaching us to be humble, he makes us more like Jesus, who is the ultimate example of humility. Now, let's consider Jesus for a moment. When we think about the humility of Jesus, what comes to mind? Do we get this sense that Jesus was a man who was driven by ego and pride, who was afraid of appearing weak? Of course not. In fact, we get completely the opposite. In Christ, we get the ultimate picture of humility. For example, we would read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, who is very God of very God, took the form of a servant and humbled himself by dying on a cross. Now, that's one example. There are countless throughout the, both the Old and New Testaments. Now, time doesn't allow us to, to read all of them, but here's a sample of what some of the, the witness of Scripture says about the humility of Christ. It says, Jesus, who is the Lord of glory in James chapter 2, verse 1, the beautiful, glorious one, Isaiah 4, 2, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3, full of grace and truth, John 1.4, is also the same Jesus who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not, Isaiah 53.3. There has never been a greater humiliation of a person than that of Jesus Christ. No one has ever descended so low because no one has ever come from so high. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus purposely laid aside for a time his rights as God. He laid aside for a time his privileges as God. He shed the robes of his glory, and for what reason? So that he might be the object of shame and ridicule. And he did this willingly. He did this joyfully, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He humbled himself before God and before men voluntarily, 
Why? So that through him, his people would be saved. As we think about this, this should bring, in us, bring us a keen sense and humble adoration of our Savior, a man of sorrows who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. So when we consider Jesus, when we consider his humiliation, is there any humiliation that is too great for us? Can we think of a situation where we, as sinful creatures, can compare our humiliation to that of Jesus in his life and death? The answer is, of course, no. Yet we are stubborn. We are prideful. We have such difficulty setting those things aside and admitting that there are times when we are weak and needy. We have such difficulty admitting that there are times when our problems are more than we can handle. So what does God do? He puts us in situations where we've got no choice. He puts us in situations where our trials and tribulations, the burdens of this life, are too great for us to bear. And that causes us to admit our weakness and our humility. And his purpose in doing that is to teach us to be humble. It forces us to lay aside our pride and face the reality that we're really not meant to rely on ourselves. It teaches us humility, and that makes us more like Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. Afflictions drive us to dependence. They drive us to dependence. Look with me at verse 9, the second half. It says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul said that he was burdened beyond despair to the point where he felt like he was going to die. Why? So that he would rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. You see, as a man, Paul's tendency was no different than ours. Just like we are, he was tempted to place his confidence in his own strength and his own abilities rather than on God. And the reason for this is pride. We know that elsewhere, Paul writes about God giving him a thorn in the flesh. And he says why. It was to keep him humble. Like us, you see, Paul struggled with pride. And the problem is that the roots of our pride go deep. It makes, us, it makes me think about a time a few years ago. I'm, I'm sure that anyone who owns a home can relate to this. Uh, there was this uh, time a few summers ago where a tree in the front of my house died. Now, the tree was 17 years old, so it was there for a while. I was actually glad it died, but that's uh, another story. Uh, but there, the tree was 17 years old. It died, and that meant that I was going to have to remove it. I was going to have to cut it down. So I got a chainsaw, and I, I cut it down until all that was left was a stump. And now I've got this ugly stump sticking out of the ground in the front of my house. And now I needed to remove that too because you know what happens, right? If a stump is left, what happens? It starts to sprout new growth. If it doesn't get removed, it'll eventually uh, turn into a tree. It'll grow again. Now, I thought it would be easy to remove this stump. Anyone ever try to remove a stump before? It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Well, what I didn't realize is after the last 17 years, the roots of that tree had grown so deep that without the right tools and a lot of effort, there was no way that thing was coming out. The roots had grown so deep. I had to resort to some really drastic measures, and I needed a lot of help if I was going to deal with this stump and stop the tree from growing back. And that's exactly how it is with our pride. The roots of our pride go so deep that sometimes God has to use drastic measures to cut them out 
so that eventually our pride doesn't grow back. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He, he becomes so self-reliant that God had to bring him to the point where his burdens were so overbearing that he felt like he was going to die. But why did God do this? It was to make him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. John Calvin, as he reflected on this wrote, verse, wrote this in his commentary. We are not brought to real submission until we've been laid low by the crushing hand of God. It's a very sobering statement. And I know it sounds provocative, but sometimes we need a good dose of helplessness because the roots of our pride go deep. Sometimes we need to be brought to nothing and stripped of our false sense of self-confidence. Why? So that we learn to rely not on ourselves, but on God. So how do you know if you're relying on yourself and not on the Lord? How do you know? What, what are some indications? Well, one of them is you're anxious about your life. You're anxious. You're constantly worrying about your circumstances. You're constantly concerned with how things are going to turn out and what's going to happen. And the reason that makes you anxious is because you desire control. That's the sin beneath the sin. There are root sins and fruit sins. Well, control is the sin beneath the sin. That's a root sin. Very often we idolize control, and that's why we become anxious. But the thing is, we are not meant to be in control. So sometimes God brings you to the point of desperation because desperation breeds dependence. Desperation breeds dependence. If we need any evidence of that, we need to no look, look no further than our prayer life. What is it we, that we pray most fervently? When do we pray most fervently? It's when we're desperate. Or am I the only one? I pray most fervently when I am desperate. You see, our prayer life is an indication of who we are relying on. It's in the moments when we're so overwhelmed by the trials of life that we turn to God. And, and the reason we do that is because it's in those moments when we realize that there's no one else we can turn to. Now, have you ever thought about maybe the reason why God puts you in these situations is so that you would talk to him? And I don't mean talk to him in the, in the cliches that we could recite in our sleep, but I mean really talk to him. Talk to him in a way that says you recognize your total dependence and need for him. You see, that's what trials do to us. They make us realign our priorities. When you go to the doctor and you get bad news, all of a sudden that problem at work doesn't seem so important. So God uses those moments to cause us to realign our priorities because they make us realize what's truly important. And at the top of that list is our relationship with the Lord. God wants us to talk to him and depend on him. And not just when things are really bad, but in everything. Peter tells us in chapter 1 of his epistle, uh, first epistle, this is, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see, God wants us to depend on him because he cares for us. And the fact of the matter is, we are really depending on him for anything every way. We just don't acknowledge it, right? God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. So whether we admit it or not, we are depending on him. So God brings trials and tribulations that are beyond our ability to bear to wake us up to the fact that we really need to rely on him. 
And he does this because he cares for us. Think about it. Who knows what's better for, or who knows what's good for you, or what's better for you than God? Who knows what's better for you, you or the one who created you? Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we say these things to our children all the time, right? We warn them about the pitfalls of life. We show them where all the landmines are, and we warn them not to step on them. But what do they do? They do what they want anyway. And we sit back and we shake our heads and we say, if only they'd listen. And that's us, mere creatures. We can warn our, pit, our children about the pitfalls of life because we've likely stepped in them ourselves. But that's not God. Think about it from his perspective, right? So on, on this side, you've got James, the imperfect creature who constantly makes mistakes. And over there, you have God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the holy one, the righteous one, the just one, the immortal, invisible, only wise God. And he's saying, depend on me. Rely on me because I care for you. But what do I do? I stand over here and say, oh, don't worry, I've got it. I know what I have to do. Think about the folly in that. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very familiar verses tell us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. But what do we do more than often than not? We do the opposite, right? We, we rely on ourselves and don't acknowledge God, and we try to straighten our own paths. Think about how foolish that is. So one of the first ways we can tell that this is going on in our hearts is to look at our prayer life. When we're relying on ourselves, we either don't pray at all or we pray the same old cliches that we always pray. But when we're relying on God, our prayers take on a whole different flavor. We pray fervently. We pray desperately. We pray eagerly. We pray expectantly. We pray dependently because we know that God listens and responds and delivers. Look with me at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. You see, Paul understood this about our prayer life. And that's why he encouraged the Corinthians to pray. Prayer acknowledges our dependence. And if we want a really clear example of this, we need look no further than the prayer life of Jesus. If we look at all uh, the, the prayers that he prayed in his life, we'd see something very interesting. We'd see that he didn't reserve communion with his father only for times when things were really bad. He relied on prayer for everything. For example, we see that when he was baptized at the beginning of his public ministry, he was praying. We see that before he preached in Galilee, he rose early in the morning and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Luke also mentions that when the crowds were pressing in on him, the burden of his ministry was growing, Jesus would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. Think about this, right? He had all of these people coming to him with various needs that he, needed to help, that, that he wanted to help because they knew that he could help them. But what did he do? He understood he was useless to them without prayer. So even though the crowds were pressing in on him, what did he do? He went off to a desolate place and prayed because he knew the importance of prayer. He understood the importance of communion with his father. He realized that it was an essential part of his life. He needed prayer like he needed air. 
Without it, he couldn't live. You see, Jesus is the ultimate picture of a life lived wholly dependent on God. In John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So if Jesus relied not on himself but on God, how could we live any differently? Or how should we live? We should live the same way. Jesus tells us himself, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the Christian life, it's a life of dependence, not independence. And sometimes God pushes us to the point of despair to wake us up to this reality. You see, the more we humble ourselves, the more we rely not on ourselves but on God, the more we are made like Jesus, who lived not for himself but for others, bringing glory to his Father in heaven. Let me say that one more time. The, the more we humble ourselves, the more we rely not on ourselves but on God, the more we are made like Jesus, who lived not for himself but for others, bringing glory to his Father in heaven. And that brings us to our last point. Afflictions remind us of our hope. They remind us of our hope. Look with me at verse 10. It says, He delivered us from such, such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set, us, set our hope that he will deliver us again. I want you to realize something. The fact that you're sitting here today means that God has brought you through 100% of your hard days up to this point. Think about that. Really meditate on that. The fact that you're sitting here today means that God has brought you through 100% of your hard days up to this point. And I'm sure many of us have had, have had some very hard days. But God has brought us through. He brought us through 100% of your trials and tribulations, even those really bad ones where you couldn't see a way out. God has brought you through. How encouraging, how encouraging is it when you think about it? I mean, because... I know that there have been times in your life where you've thought, I'm never getting out of this one. Yet, here you are. You see, when you look back on your life and realize that God has delivered you from one great trial after another, you can have confidence that he will deliver you again. And this should utterly change how we live our lives. That's the confidence that Paul had. Now, maybe you're young and you haven't gone through a great trial in your life. Well, you have a church full of people who have. Talk to them. Let them tell you about how God has delivered them time and again. I can promise you that will do wonders for your confidence that God can and will deliver you. Now, I can hear somebody thinking, that's not really true. I have a friend who went to the doctor the other day, and the doctor said, I'm sorry, Mr. So-and-so, but we found a spot on your lung, and it doesn't look good. It's only going to be a matter of months. What hope does he have? We see Paul... Ultimately, his hope was not in this life, but in the life to come. He writes to the church in Philippian, uh, Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. His hope wasn't in this life, but in the life to come. His hope was on God who raises the dead. You see, for the Christian, for, for those who have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, death is it's as benign as taking a nap. 
That's why Paul writes in several places when talking about those who have died, he refers to them as those who have fallen asleep. Looking forward to the resurrection, Paul writes elsewhere to the Corinthians, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was hoping in. That's what gave him confidence that God would deliver him again. Even if that trial that he was going through led to his death. It was so that he would rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. So the question I have for you, for you is this. Who are you hoping in? Who are you relying on? If you're relying on yourself, who's going to deliver you from the trials that are too heavy to bear? Who's going to deliver you on the day when your body, body finally gives out and you breathe your last? You see, if your hope isn't in the God who raises the dead, then you have no hope at all. But it doesn't have to be that way. The verse we're all familiar with, God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the hope that Paul is talking about, and that hope can be yours. But only if you've turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. Only if you're relying on him and trusting in the God who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, God brings burdens into our lives that are too much to bear so that he can teach us how to suffer well. When you learn to be humble, when you learn to not rely on yourself but on God, when you hope in him alone to deliver you from your trials, he makes you more like Jesus. And Jesus suffered well. And when you suffer well, you bring glory to your Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When you suffer well, you let your light shine before men. They see your good works and it causes them to glorify God. Why? Because suffering well is supernatural. It doesn't come naturally. And when the watching world see this, they marvel at it because it's not the way natural people respond to the trials and tribulations of life. What's the world used to seeing? They're used to seeing suffering without hope. They're used to seeing suffering that looks to them purposeless. But that's not when they, what they see when they see us suffer well. When we suffer well, they see something different, and it causes them to ask for a reason for the hope that's within you. They want to know how it is that you're able to smile, have a smile on your face despite what seems like hopeless circumstances. It causes them to ask how it is that you've gone to the doctor and the doctor tells you you've got six months to live, but instead of despair, you were full of hope and joy. Why? Because your hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. Now, maybe you're thinking that kind of hope seems impossible. How do I ask God for the impossible, especially when I deserve it the least? How do I suffer well when my suffering is a result of my own personal sin? How do I suffer well when my suffering is a result of a pattern of sinful responses to something that has happened in my life? Well, the answer is no different. You suffer well by or humbling yourself before the hand of God, the mighty hand of the Lord. 
You suffer well by confessing your sins first to God and to those you have sinned against. You suffer well by relying not on yourself but on God. You turn from your sin and stop following after your own way and follow Christ. And finally, you suffer well by putting your hope in God alone to deliver you instead of putting your hope in yourself. And when you do those things, you suffer well and it brings glory to your Father in heaven. So as we wrap wrap up this morning, the question I want you to ask yourself is this. When I'm overwhelmed by the burdens of life, does the way I respond bring glory to God? And if the answer is no, I want you to ask yourself, am I willing to allow God to use my trials and tribulations to teach me to be humble? Am I willing to stop relying on myself and start relying on God to get me through? And finally, am I willing to place my hope in him because he's delivered me before and I know he'll do it again? Now, if you're going through something right now and you're overwhelmed by the problems of life, I know this may sound impossible. But I promise you, it's not. How can I know this? Because I know our Savior. And he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beloved, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We do ask, Lord, as we bring these trials and tribulations that that are so so burdening to us before you, that you would draw near to us today, that you would help us to cast all of our anxieties and our fears and our worries and our concerns upon you, because we know, Lord, that you care for us. God, you are worthy of all honor and all glory and praise. And I do ask that as we leave here today and as we go about our day, not even the rest of today, but even this week, implant these truths in our heart that we may live in a way that pleases you, in a way that brings you glory, that the watching world may see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. We do ask this and pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.